Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're going to be looking at the book of Esther. In fact, the only other book named after a woman, Mike. Yeah, that's right. In a previous episode, we've looked at Ruth. And now here's the second book that's named after a woman. Very significant, of course, in a time uh, when women didn't have as significant a place as men. In a sentence, what's the book about? It's the story of a young Jewish woman who ends up through some miraculous steps becoming the Queen of Persia and is therefore in a place to rescue her people, the Jews who are still in exile with her, from what we would see today as total annihilation, the ethnic cleansing of a people that was planned by one of the king's wicked servants. In a previous conversation, previous episode, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, you'd explained that many Jews had gone back to Jerusalem, but many were still living in, in Persia. And that's where this is happening, is it? Yes, that's right. When the king of Persia, King Cyrus, issued his decree that he allowed conquered peoples to go back home after he had conquered the nation of Babylon, while some people wanted to go back, and we saw in a previous episode only about 40,000 Jews went back in the first return to the Promised Land, not everybody was, yeah, let's go, this is it, what a wonderful opportunity, this is what we've been waiting for. Many had settled down, they'd become comfortable, they'd got a whole new way of life, why would they want to disrupt their life, their jobs, their home, find new schools for the kids, all those sort of things that we would think of today. So many of the Jews actually had settled down and, and had developed a very comfortable life indeed. And this story of Esther is a story of what's happening in one situation back there in Persia and not where most of the Bible is set in the promised land of Israel. So what do we know about Esther herself? Well, we don't know a huge amount, but we know that she was an orphan and she had been brought up by one of her relatives, Mordecai, who therefore become as good as her dad. And it's Mordecai who is able to use this opportunity that God has given him and use this opportunity. It almost sounds a bit cruel as I say that because of the story that will unfollow. But he sees that here is an opportunity that God has given him that could be for the benefit of all his people. So a pagan king is on the throne in Persia. How does Esther come into the royal courts, as it were, then? Well, the Persian king, at this time called King Xerxes, decides to throw a fantastic banquet. It's actually a banquet that lasts 180 days. Now, it's easy for us. Oh, there we go. Another one of the Bible's exaggerations. No, we've actually got records of this in Persian history that this really happened. What is happening here is the king of Persia is wanting to show off. And he brought all the rulers from all across his vast, vast empire to this mega, mega banquet that went on and on for months 
because he wanted to show how great he was, how splendid he was, the wealth of his empire. And as part of that vast banquet that he held, we discover in chapter one of Esther that on the seventh day, he commands that the queen be brought into his presence. Why? Because he wants to parade her off. And the queen refuses to come. She refuses to be seen as a mere object that he can parade. And this is the party of the century. It's the party of the century, but she ain't coming because she realises she's just there as a token to show, look what a beautiful wife I have. Therefore, look how great I must be. Of course, despots don't take very kindly to their will being thwarted by that. And so in chapter one, we find that the queen is deposed because the king, of course, can't lose face. Remember, there's all these key leaders from across his empire. If he didn't act now, he would have lost face terribly. So what they decide to do is, well, clearly you need another queen now. And so what we would call a beauty contest is organized for a replacement. So he issues a degree that there's going to be a a Miss Persia contest, perhaps we ought to call it. And uh, it's Mordecai who realizes that this could be an opportunity for his young cousin named Esther, the heroine of our story, who clearly was a very pretty girl, And he thinks, do you know what? I wonder if this is an opportunity that could be used. And so he puts forward Esther as one of the possibilities for this contest. Uh, But he's very careful to say to her, make sure that you don't let them know that you're a Jew. So clearly there was some anti-Semitic feelings in some quarters, even if not among the king Himself, After all, he was the king of a vast empire and all sorts of people. So he puts her into this beauty contest, tells her not to reveal her nationality. And they go through a whole process of months of being beautified and prepared and everything else in order that they can be presented in turn to the king. I mean, really, she becomes part of what we would call this harem. So, you know... (laughs) It's not an easy bit of the story, this. It can't have been easy for her. But as she comes to her turn to be presented to the king, wow, he is completely smitten. And we read in chapter two that the king was attracted to Esther more than to anyone else. She won his favor and his approval. So clearly it wasn't just her looks. It must have been her personality, her conversation, everything else. And he instantly decides to make her queen. So now we have a Jewish queen in place in Persia, but nobody knows that she's Jewish. You mentioned about the kind of anti-Semitic feeling that was around. How did that show itself? Well, in this story, it's manifested in particular through one key character in the story that we meet in chapter 3. Now, the story jumps on a little. It's now four years later, so she's been the queen for four years. There's been an incident where 
Mordecai discovers a plot against the king, lets Esther know, she lets the king know, and that plot is thwarted. So we just park that for a moment because it's going to come into the story later. But four years after that, there's this chief official called Haman. He's described as Haman the Agagite. He's part of the royal court, is he? Yeah, exactly. He's a, a leading official there for the king. An Agagite, King Agag, had been an Amalekite, and the Amalekites were traditional ancient enemies of Israel. They'd attacked the Israelites when they had been on the journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. So the rivalry, the hatred between these two people groups went back centuries, and like much racism, no, like all racism, it's so often rooted in the irrational and in things from the past. And so this guy, Haman, really starts to turn against the Jews because he, he gets an opportunity to get one over on them. So he hates the Jews. Oh, he really does. And uh, because of his very high position, the, the king elevates him, it says, to uh, a high position, gives him a seat of honour higher than all the others, and all the royal officials have to bow down to him. But Mordecai refuses to do it. Mordecai's view is there's only one person I'm going to bow down to, and that's my king in heaven and probably the king here on earth, but I'm certainly not going to bow down to some upstart courtier who thinks he's something special. That's a brave thing to do. Well, very brave. And, you know, it would have reaction as well, because when Haman sees that Mordecai won't bow down to him and won't pay him honor in any way, he looks for a way. Now, you might expect me to say he looks for a way to get at Mordecai, maybe to kill Mordecai. Oh, no, that's not enough for this guy. Something got triggered in him. And having discovered that Mordecai was a Jew, he then determines that not only is he going to get rid of Mordecai, he is going to exterminate the whole Jewish population throughout the whole Persian Empire. Now, just hear that phrase, the whole Persian Empire. So that would be where they were to the east, right back to Judah, where the returning exiles had come. And so his desire now is to see a total annihilation of the Jewish people. And to get that to happen, he goes to King Xerxes, spins a story to him about there being a people scattered across his empire who are living in a way that is not in the king's best interests. And your majesty, really, you need to put a decree out to have these people exterminated. What's going on in Haman's mind, I'm wondering? He had this sense of self-importance, you said, and that's developed into a hatred way beyond just between him and one other person. I mean, it's quite irrational, isn't it? But... Racism is irrational. If you ever tried to sit and talk to a racist and have like a reasoned conversation with them, it is extremely difficult to do. 
their racism is rooted in the irrational, in stories of stories of stories they've heard. It's that kind of thing. You you cannot get to the root of what it is that they are struggling with. And I think there is just an irrational hatred that goes back centuries. I mean, perhaps to use an illustration, it's not that long ago within the British Isles that we were seeing bombs set off between so-called Protestants and so-called Catholics in Northern Ireland over issues that went back hundreds and hundreds of years, producing a deep-seated hatred. So it is irrational. So, you know, you say to me, what's going on? I have no idea. I have no idea how a racist mind works. Because for us as Christians, you know, we're told very clearly right back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis that every human being is made in the image of God, that God's plan was to have people fill the whole earth, that at the end there will be people of every tribe and tongue and language and nation gathered around the throne. So I can't even start to get my mind around why someone would think that someone of a different skin colour or a different ethnic origin or a different language should be treated as less than you, less human than you, and certainly worthy of extermination. Which makes Mordecai's reaction even more remarkable. He is clearly standing up against this person. Yes, he is. I mean, he really refuses to bow down to this guy. He's not nasty to him. You know, we get no sense of nastiness at all in these stories about Mordecai. But he, he just stands his ground and refuses to do this. But once Haman has got the command from the king that the Jews are to be wiped out, I mean, he's manipulated the king, really. He said, oh, these people are against you. There's a plot against you, your majesty. Well, clearly the king is going to react to that. But what happens, we find, in chapter 4 is that Mordecai now goes to Esther and says it's your time to help. And there is this amazing part in chapter 4 where he goes to Esther, tells her the plot that has been discovered and says, you know, don't think you'll escape either because it'll come out that you're a Jew, so this is going to include you as well. So and she's got the ear of the king. She's got his ear, hasn't she? And there's this lovely phrase where he says to her, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. In other words, God will still work something out somewhere or other. But then this, but who knows that you've come to royal position for such a time as this? Who knows, Esther? If all that we've been through and that preparing and you being put there in the king's harem and then elevated to be his queen and now you've got his ear, as you put it, who knows if God wasn't behind all of that? And he's really saying, come on, Esther, can you not see? This has been God who's been bringing you to this moment. To say that, Esther was facing something of a dilemma is a bit of an understatement. Yes, and she therefore goes about it very wisely. Clearly, she knows her husband quite well, 
And the thing that she doesn't do is go and say, oh, honey, I hear you plan to uh, kill off all the Jews. I think you've made a mistake. Can we reverse that, please? Oh, and by the way, I'm a Jew as well. That wouldn't go down well. And as we read this story, I think we've said before in these series of podcasts, try and put yourself into the characters at times. Imagine how you would have felt, what you would have been thinking. And as we put ourselves into the character of Esther in chapter five, we we find her approaching the king in an incredibly wise way. She knows that if there's one thing the king likes, it's a good banquet. So she decides to go in at that level and she invites the king and Haman, only Haman, to come to this special banquet. She says, I I want to put a a special banquet on for you. You know, there is something I want. He said, well, what is it? No, 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 I don't want to tell you now. I want to put this special banquet on for you. And if you come to the banquet, then I will, I'll tell you there. That would have made him feel good, bearing in mind he was a man of self-importance. Oh, absolutely. And he's therefore ready to say to her, listen, that's really great. You know, thank you. And whatever it is that you want to ask me for, be assured that I'll be able to grant that to you. And of course, Haman is the only one who has been invited to the banquet as well by her. So he goes out feeling pretty cock-a-hoop and he goes home to his family and says, guess what? I, uh, I... I'm the only one who has been invited to this banquet. Unfortunately, on his way home, he bumps into Mordecai and that sort of sets him off in bad spirits again. So by the time he gets home, he's also grumpy saying, well, I'm really happy to be going to this banquet. But as long as I see this wretched Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, how can I feel happy? And then it's his wife, Haman's wife, who says, tell you what to do, have a gallows built, a really big one, and hang him on it after the dinner. And he thinks, yeah, that would be a good thing to do. So she's caught up in his hatred as well. Absolutely. And it's funny, isn't it, how bitterness and hatred can have a way of spreading, and then it feeds one another. Esther's strategy, is that rooted in prayer? Well, the funny thing is that... This is a book in which God doesn't get mentioned. So I'd love to be able to say to you, yes, but there's no mention of prayer. Actually, there's no mention of God. But I think what the writer is trying to show us here is that God is at work behind it all. Here's an example of what we call the sovereignty of God, the God who overrules situations and circumstances beyond what we can see. So while he's not mentioned, it's clear he is not absent. He's very, very present in the incredible number of coincidences that has happened. So what happens after the banquet? Well, the king has a night when he can't sleep. So he gets up in the night and does what many of us does, decides to read a book, except he, uh, the books that he has uh, tend to be all the royal chronicles. So he has them brought out and gets one of his officials to, to read the royal chronicles to him as, as a way of lulling him to sleep, I think. The archives. The archives, that's a good way of putting it. 
And while they're reading through it, we come back to that story that we mentioned earlier at the end of chapter two, when Mordecai had uncovered the conspiracy against the king. And they read that bit and the king says, oh, right. What did we do for the person who, you know, in effect saved my life there and brought us the news? And they say, well, you know, nothing. And he said, well, we need to do something. Who's, who's still in the palace? And they said, well, there's only Haman. Okay, get Haman to come in. Haman, what should I do to honour someone more than anyone else whom I'm really pleased with? Of course, Haman, full of self-pride, thinks, hello, hello, this is me. So he bigs up what the king should do. And eventually the king says, that's great. Have this done for Mordecai. And at that point, of course, his face falls completely. Haman can't believe it. He absolutely can't believe it. And in fact, as we read on in the story, what ends up happening is that Haman himself will be hanged on the gallows that he had prepared to have Mordecai hanged on. Don't want to give it all away. I will give too many spoilers away here, won't we? And then people won't want to read the book for themselves. It sounds like a roller coaster of a story for sure. So how does it all end? Well, remember the edict has gone out from the king that all the Jews are to be exterminated across the land. But with Haman now out of the way, the, the motivator, the instigator behind that, clearly we need to see that reversed. But... In the laws of the Medes and the Persians, as it was called at the time, once the king had made a law, it couldn't be revoked. It was irrevocable. So the only way around that was to have a, another law that would somehow override it. And so Esther is able to persuade the king that she too is a Jew and it's her people that he's allowed to be exterminated. Of course, he loves her. He wants to do something to protect her people. So he now issues another decree that says, okay, I want it to be known throughout my empire that every Jew may arm themselves and that whoever comes to attack them, the Jews may kill them to defend themselves and have my protection upon them. Well, clearly that has now diffused the whole thing. The second law is in effect cancelled out the first. And that leads to great rejoicing amongst the Jewish community, of course. You can imagine the anxiety that there had been among them right across the empire. Fear. When a day had been set that they were all going to be exterminated. Now the new law comes, they know that they are safe. So there was a date in the calendar when the Jews would have been exterminated. That's right. And the Jews celebrated the avoidance of that through a festival. It's called the Festival of Purim, and we see that instituted in Esther chapter 9. Purim means lots, and that date had been decided by the casting of lots, and that's why it took that name. And still to this day, uh, the Jewish community celebrate the festival of Purim. They're remembering this time in the Old Testament history. In fact, the last time in Old Testament history when there is an attempt to annihilate the Jews. And so still today, very popular festival, children dress up in costumes and, uh, and they give gifts and presents to one another and there are special cakes. It's, 
it's sort of imagine sort of Christmas for Christians. It's, it's that sort of party festival atmosphere. And they're celebrating, uh, you know, not just this occasion, but they're celebrating the faithfulness of God to the people of Israel, both throughout the Old Testament period and throughout history, because this would not be the last time in history that people have tried to exterminate the Jewish people. There have been many attempts over the centuries and they've never succeeded. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob centuries ago that they would always have descendants and that one day those descendants, including those that were outside the Jewish people, the Gentiles, would one day fill the whole earth. I was particularly noting in the story of Esther how she had a opportunity at one point when she heard, first of all, from Mordecai about the threat to the Jewish people to do something, but she she waited and then the opportunity occurred later on. How important is that lesson for us? Yeah, I think it's very important. We saw the same thing in a previous episode when we looked at Nehemiah, didn't we? When Nehemiah received news about the city walls and gates being destroyed in Jerusalem. And there he prays and he waited, and we noted he waited four months before he got an opportunity. So, you know, in, in life there are times we just have to grab things when they come and grab opportunities. But I suspect, by and large, most Christians these days are, are more activists than people who go and really bring it before God first. And she is... Waiting, And as we said, while God isn't mentioned, I think even behind the scenes there, we can imagine what did she do in that waiting time? I'm sure there must have been some prayer, though we're not told about that in the story. So waiting for God's moment is really important. There's a lovely verse in Isaiah 64, verse 4, which says, Since ancient times, no one has heard of any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him, who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. God acts while I wait. Most of us want to get God to wait while I act. We rush in and he's there on the sideline and she's waiting for the right moment to come. But when it comes, man, does she grab it with both hands? I guess the flip side of this is that sometimes we can wait too long. And that's where the challenge comes, isn't it? And sometimes we can wait that long that we miss the moment. And I'm sure many of us will have had opportunities when perhaps we had an opportunity to share the gospel and we were waiting, 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 and the moment's gone. And certainly I know in my own life I've got, oh, blow, missed it. And that's why it's important to try and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, because rushing in can be as damaging as holding back. And so trying to be a people who are led by the Holy Spirit and responsive to God is important. And the truth is, I think we just have to acknowledge there'll be times when we wait too long and there'll be times when we don't wait long enough. The important thing is to try and learn out of that. And perhaps the underlying thing is to make sure that we prayed about things first. 
whether it's a season of prayer like Nehemiah did for those four months or that quick arrow prayer to heaven he did when he got his opportunity to ensure that we're just not rushing out doing it, but that we take action prayerfully, both before and during and after. Why are you particularly grateful that the book of Esther is in the Bible? Oh, I think because for me, besides, well, besides being a great story, I mean, it's a really easy story to read and it's quite gripping. And again, if you put yourself into it, it's very easy to imagine yourself in this story. But I think for me, what I love about this book is it shows us how God is the God who can work behind the scenes. You know, it's not always avert, but the number of, as it were, coincidences that happen here, even things like, you know, all these thousands of pretty women in the Persian Empire who are gathered for the king, and it just happens to be Esther who's chosen. The king can't sleep one night, and it just happens to read the bit about Mordecai having saved him. And there are so many of these instances throughout the story where God is clearly at work, even though he's not named as such. And so I love it because it underlines for me what the New Testament will sum up in a verse which says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him in Romans chapter eight. And I think that really comes out. God truly does work for the good of those who love him in this story, but he's often working behind the scenes. And we need to be a people who, as we are praying, can trust that God is indeed always at work behind the scenes, even where we can't see it, even when things seem to be going wrong at first, working through the apparent coincidences of life. Here is what the Bible calls a sovereign God who rules over all things and ultimately works all things together for his good purpose. And that, it seems to me, is one of the great messages that comes out of Esther and is one of the really good reasons for reading it. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, Check out the website at ucb.co.uk.